Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. I'm Steven Stahosky. I'm Caleb Meyer, and we are very excited to welcome into the studio today my dear, dear friend, Casey Stombaugh. He says excited, I say terrified. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, you know. It's, it's a just... lot of emotions. <laughs> <laughs> all. We cover it all here. Casey and I, we've been friends since high school. Oh, yeah. So we first met a long time ago. But why don't you tell the people what you're here to talk about today and your credentials for why we brought you on uh, to yeah, discuss it. Absolutely. So what we're talking about is we're talking about staged combat, essentially. So specifically combat in film and whether that's movies, television, anything like that. The last time that I was on here with uh, Stephen for a Spotlight, we talked a little bit about an actor's and a theater perspective off of playing D&D. And basically, I want to bring that into the discussion of the combat as well. So I have my degree in theater, specifically acting, but my concentration is in stage combat. It's something that I have enjoyed since it was showed to me, and I've just run with it. I have gotten training in fighting with various, various weapons, more of a intense study on specifically knife fighting, unarmed fighting, and longsword. You forgot your tomahawk. Well, the, uh, you know, the tomahawk goes with the knife. Generally. Did you get to use a maca weedle? I need to ask, because I, I don't think I've ever actually asked. Oh, no, absolutely. I, th- we had some mock maca weedles that... Basically, it's just a giant frat paddle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I ask, because he and I have, have discussed combat in various forms. I've, I've done a small amount for, for opera, mostly. And then I did fencing for a long time. So my, mm. my background when it comes to fighting is a little bit different. But uh, a Makawidal is an ancient Aztec weapon that's essentially, like Casey said, a giant frat paddle with obsidian blades attached to the outside. Mm-hmm. And there are very, very, very few people in the world who know any kind of technique on how to use it, one of which was your teacher. Yeah, my, my mentor, Dr. John Lennox, has taught me pretty much everything that I know. Not quite everything, but the majority of it. And he is an expert on not only different uh, like Central and South American fighting styles, including the Incan style of fighting, uh, Rumi Maki, which includes tons of totem animal styles, very similar to Kung Fu and everything like that, as well as Makawidal, that he actually goes down to Mexico with a good friend of his and teaches that every year at a conference. But that's that's just kind of where I'm coming from with all of that. I've been studying this not terribly long, but probably started doing it in earnest around 2015, 2016. That's seven years. That is seven. We say not terribly long, but that is seven years ago. That's also probably around when we would have met, because that was Mm -hmm. right around when I was coming into yours and Caleb's and Lucas Gerke's social circle. Yeah, absolutely. And, And it's just something that I managed to make really good friends with, uh, Doc, and just continued that training past even what the class that we had at the university was, and have just been able to run with it and... It's one of my favorite things. And it's one of my favorite things also to watch in film. Whenever a fight scene happens, I like to be able to pick apart and see how the combat is happening and the story that it's telling and whether it's, okay, is this realistic combat? Is this fantastical combat? Is this bad combat? Yeah. It's just really fun for me. And, you know, anytime someone has, uh, like, an exceptional viewpoint, like uh, a specialization in something, you're going to notice it whenever you see it. And so that, to me, is just always 
what I pay attention to. And it's very fun for me to be able to go in and, and tear it apart, which I hope to do with y'all today a little bit. I yeah. think that's one of those things that kind of stands out to a lot of the movies that at least the people sitting at this table recording this podcast kind of gravitate <laughs> towards. Are, yeah. You know, good good fight sequences can progress a story along. And mm-hmm. reveal a character. Yeah. And reveal a character really well. The yeah, the, if they're the, done well, absolutely, and, and those ones are the ones that like we remember. And the beautiful thing about it is, it's a, it's one of those tenants where you get to show the idea instead of just talking about it. You get to know characters so quickly by how they react to things physically, and if you know what to look for in the different things that are happening in a fight, and especially when opportunities are not taken to take down your opponent or kill them or any of that stuff what does that say about what's happening and how does that progress the story along i have a few different uh scenes that i want to go to and specifically um some of my favorite fights are from um current disney franchises they are doing some of the best combat in my opinion outside of you know more independent and specifically fighting films like kung fu films and all of that but the fighting in star wars and marvel uh, you can tell that they're able to spend the money on getting the people in who know how to tell these stories through these fights that's not all we're going over but there is a large chunk of that well yeah i thought a fun way to start this would just be to go around the table and talk about like each pick a favorite fight scene of ours yeah yeah absolutely that works before we get into that, and just to give us all a little bit of time to think, uh, I'm glad we're having this conversation in warm weather because I am sitting two feet away from the shards of Narsil. That is it's, an awesome uh, tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, dear, uh. listener, dear listener, should be made aware that the shards of Narsil are tattooed on Casey's arm and shoulder. Uh, yes. And it's pretty wicked. It's currently the only tattoo I have. I've had it for a few years. You have that classic hilt. I can't talk about basically any of this without just spouting my love for that series and everything that it's done for me and my interests going forward. Um, I don't actually have any scenes from Lord of the Rings today, but that is really what propelled me into my love of both fantasy and combat. We're going to talk about a lot of like one-on-one duels yes. in today's episode, but I think Lord of the Rings does an amazing job of those large-scale fight scenes. Still my favorite scene in any movie today, I will get goosebumps all the way up and down my body, is the charge of the Rohirrim and Minas yep. Tirith. Oh, when those horns, when yes. those horns sound, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about yeah. it. It is my favorite scene in anything ever. The large-scale battles, Lord of the Rings definitely set the bar. Movies like The Kingdom of Heaven come to mind when you're looking at some of those really big-scale fight scenes. But also, if we're talking about these large-scale fights, you cannot not include Game of Thrones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those large battles are some of the best as far as cinematography goes, like those yeah. those fights and the coordination that happens between from a technical aspect, they're yeah, incredible, and it just just beautiful, and right, and it yeah. shows that chaos. And when during the Battle of Bastards, when like they're just getting compressed, like literally crushed to death because all that, like that is so realistic. That would happen. Your own men are trampling you and crushing you to death because you cannot escape. Mm-hmm. Very gritty, very real.
further, if you hear a title of something you haven't seen before that you still want to, spoiler alert. Big scale fights, I think actually my favorite fight scene, if we're looking at big scale before we dive into the one-on-one type stuff, mm-hmm. is actually in The Last Samurai. Mm, the, the charge. Uh, the battles between the new Imperial Army of Japan and the old Samurai Warrior. That's a, uh, that the takes Satsuma the, Rebellion. Yeah, that takes up the, the tail end of the movie. The, that battle sequence, all of it is just wonderfully shot. And it's one of those things where you saw, you didn't see a ton of CGI. That's all extras. That's all professional stuntmen on set doing the fight. With live with explosions. With live explosions. With live arrows. Mm. They were actually, they had these, uh, and they used them in Lord of the Rings too, but they had these like um, pneumatic tubes mm. that would fire bundles of rubber-tipped arrows out <laughs> into what was supposed to be a safe zone, but, you know, there's a chance you could get hit, but it yeah. was non-lethal by all means. But they're actually firing them, and they did that at the Battle of Helm's Deep too, where they just had these tubes hooked up to a CO2 cartridge that would just... <laughs> And send <laughs> bundles of arrows flying over for, for his cameras to catch. That's actually, that is a technique you see in Kingdom of Heaven, Last Samurai, Lord of the Rings. I'm sure they probably use something similar. And so you can, in Game of Thrones, so you can get that, the yeah. live footage of arrows actually going over the walls and things. So. Absolutely. The Last Samurai has some really, really great fight scenes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're look, talking one-on-one, I think my favorite fight scene is also Last Samurai. The main character, Nathan Algren, is learning the sword, learning the Japanese katana style mm-hmm. of fighting. And he's fighting... He's with a training sword, the uh, the the master of the village, um, the master swordsman of the village, Yuji, and uh, they end in a draw, mm-hmm. which is a very cool scene because there are other samurai watching, who are constantly taking bets on how many moves it will take for Yuji to defeat Nathan Algren. Absolutely. And uh, the one guy is always right, and the other guy loses all of his money. <laughs> it's very funny, but it's uh, those are a great set of scenes because you get to see. The kind of a technical aspect where you've seen Nathan kind of progress and now you're watching him actually show down and how fast they actually were. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it's a very cool scene. But Yeah, and, and even just going off of that, even just from what I remember of that scene, beautiful, beautiful storytelling. Throughout that entire period of time in the movie where the main character is getting more and more accepted within the village, one of the big points is that fighting once that finally happens that's when you start to see like that actual acceptance happening mm-hmm. when they get that draw and all mm-hmm. of that for me my larger scale one would be a more modern fight saying it would be in the second episode of band of brothers the assault on bear Core I, manor i don't think i know that one it was a real battle that took place in world war ii but they're fighting through these trench systems because they're taking out german machine guns firing onto the beaches at d-day so the characters are like jumping in and out of the trenches and like using cover using grenade cover to get advanced and it's the first major fight scene you see in the show and dick winters who's sort of the main character of the show he's leading the assault and this is really the first time you get to see him be a commander and oh he cares about his men and he's also very competent and cool under pressure but it's just beautifully shot and then for my one-on-one would probably have to be the (laughs) final fight in the count of monte cristo between okay. Edmund and okay. Fernand. Old school. Old yeah, school. Guy Pierce and Jim Caviezel. Yeah. Nice. Uh, a young Henry that. Cavill is also in that movie. I'm going to have to really? go back home and rewatch yes. that. I don't remember the last he plays time I did watch that. The Sun. My wife would probably really oh. like that movie, too. But it's Sorry, such a These, these thoughts you get. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I have not seen that one in a long time. I will. Because you've been waiting the whole movie for him to take his revenge, and finally he's going to kill this guy who ruined his life. Fernand is such a. He's so despicable in the fight. He, like. 
uses people as like human shields and mm. pulls like a dagger out. He has no honor whatsoever. Mm-hmm. No honor. Which is also a really fun concept to get into when you're talking about fights, specifically duels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I think that one ends in the classic. He like disarms him and he's like, I'm going to let you go, like walk away. And then he grabs his sword and comes at him and he spins around and just stabs him. Yeah. Or sees the mark of a great man. Guess I'm just a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm all right. <laughs> Actually, not my pick, but it is what you just made me think of. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The. Honor concept is, uh, I was going to lead with my larger scale fight first, but the honor concept is a good lead-in for my duel, because mm. I'm going to give some love to Orlando Bloom on two fronts here. Oh, uh, the duel I would probably go with Curse of the Black Pearl and the Blacksmith Shop. Yes. That's mm, a good one. So good. Yeah. That's a it's very good duel. so entertaining. You were using all of the elements of having a fight in a blacksmith shop setting that you possibly can. And such, such good storytelling. Mm-hmm. That This is when you set you up get, both characters. Yes, you get to know almost everything you need to know about Will. You get to know a lot of what you need to know about Jack Sparrow, but... Uh, Captain Jack who, Sparrow. Who, who can, who can a, follow that a, man's <laughs> reasoning? He's a crafty little bugger who has yeah. no issues cheating cheating to win a fight which it sets up and then he does the same thing when he puts the curse on himself in the cave at the end i mean yeah it, but it but sets you can up so much about that movie so is well. that he doesn't want to kill him and he has he honor. doesn't have a reason yep. to and he also you know doesn't want to waste, waste his, his shot. one yeah. shot <laughs> because he is a dramatic <laughs> son <Yeah>. of <laughs> and that's okay he's actually a bard it's yeah okay. no he's a bard. Yeah, not, a swash, not a swashbuckler he's a he's a bard <laughs> And then with that, we're back to Lord of the Rings, though for me, and this is probably informed by the me of my childhood, because I think the fights get more impressive and more interesting, and the fighters, and there's a power crawl element, because like early on, the hobbits are not much of a factor oh, no. in, in some of the battles, but they get better. They can be- throw they, rocks. Yes. They get better later on. I'd go Mines of Moria. I mean, the showdown with the cave mm. troll, all pinned down in one spot, Gimli is raging with grief absolutely aragorn is also drawing a bow as they're just waiting at the door and the orcs are breaking in yeah there's some and gandalf the wisest work. yeah and gandalf the wisest character that you have met to this point did not want them to go there no and that does such a good job of setting that up the, the tone and the atmosphere of that entire scene is mm. oh god we are all going to die down here just like they did and the world is screwed mm-hmm. and then it leads into because i was thinking about this because i think it's Kevin Smith, who has made the joke about the fact that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the greatest set of movies ever made about people walking. <laughs> but you have <laughs> then... So good, at, It's followed by navigating through... Casa Doom. The, yeah. And along the, the corridors and the staircases, and the fact that you have a six-minute score that is just the most epic music of Walking down some stairs <laughs> <laughs> while getting shot at. Yes. Oh my goodness. And then and the, the stairs sh- are falling apart. Yes. Oh gosh. And then the showdown between Gandalf the Gray and the Demon of the Ancient World. Uh, the and of scenes of at least Legolas Morgoth. doesn't leak off falling rocks in that scene. Morgoth. Yeah. He says Morgoth or Moria. He says Morgoth. He says Morgoth. Yeah. He names him. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think we've each gotten to do our. Yeah. I think we covered covered ours. Which, so now we have to cover Casey. Casey's yeah. list. <laughs> yeah. So I I have it broken down kind of into chunks. A few different franchises and whatnot that deal more with 
more with unarmed combat, close combat with like say knives or fists or hammers, shields, <laughs> grappling, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then kind of the back half is more where we're going to move into swordplay and the different stuff with that. I did want to throw out that not only do I do stage combat as an actor, but also have gone through training to do it as a choreographer as well, which does help to give an eye for a, a lot of this sort of stuff um, and being able to tell the story with the fight um, because that's really what is most important. You can have the cool, flashy fights that everyone goes, ooh, ah, and whatnot, but if it's not telling story, really, why is it there? So what I wanted to start off with just quickly is with a completely fantastical fight, and that is with Geralt of Rivia in the third episode of The Witcher at the end when he fights the Striga. So much screaming. That's a gnarly, it's a gnarly fight. I'm it's, actually surprised you chose that one and not the end of the first episode because that fight is brutal. Now, the reason I don't go with that one, one, is it's been talked about too much. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> it was impressive. I think it was impressive. I it, think was, it was. It was a talk. fantastic fight. Now, is the combat in there realistic? No. No, not at all. <laughs> but what it does is it shows you Geralt's abilities and right. also where his line is and what he is willing to do to do what he thinks is right regardless of what everybody thinks of him it's the battle in the blacksmith shop it's setting up character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly and you have i as we were getting ready for this i, I saw one of the top comments on the a youtube video of the striga fight was episode one makes you want to be a witcher mm. episode three makes you realize it might not be your cup of tea exactly <laughs> and and that's and that yeah. is why i wanted to talk about this one in particular because one, not only does it show you the absolute terror of these monsters to be throwing Geralt around like a toy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Combine that with what we saw in episode one, where he literally walks through an entire group of humans. Putting those two together, you just see how massive and terrifying these monsters that the Witcher's fight can be. Another thing that I really like about that fight is... It helps you nerd out as uh, if you're a video game player. If you have played the game, that fight has so many video game elements in it. Mm, mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Like the the preparation beforehand, the using of different weapons for the specific fights, the fact that witchers use silver specifically to fight monsters. You have that chain fighting. You have the, the magic that he uses and just having to wildly improvise. That's what it's like to do a boss fight in a game. In the game. In and, that and, game specifically. Yeah. And, and at the end where like he's it's like, oh, he, I'm out of potions. Like, <laughs> I'm out of potions. Like, it, yeah, and it, it just does that so well. It's also a treat for players who've played the first Witcher video game because the first video game opens with a cutscene of that mm-hmm. fight that takes place in the show. Because mm-hmm. that's oh, an, yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah. an important fight in Geralt's history and lore. Yeah, yes. it is. You're right. I don't. I don't think I put that together. The, I don't remember playing yeah. one for very long or very much because it was rough. It's <laughs> clanky. It's pretty clunky. A little bit. But That's okay. What I love about that in particular is that also tells you being one of Geralt's like first monster fights that I think you also see in the novels as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that one also really tells you, yeah, he went through and he slaughtered all those humans. He saved the monster because it wasn't their fault. And it tells you so much that he went to such lengths not to kill them. 
it, it is really just some beautiful, beautiful storytelling and just really showing you who Geralt is and where his priorities are. And he doesn't just look at the surface. He sees his surroundings. He's always looking, and he is very morally driven regardless of what people think of him. Correct me if I'm mistaken, because it's been a while since I've watched it, but it's also the first time he uses his silver sword, right? I don't actually think he uses his silver sword in that. In the fight? Okay. Um, so you he's have, not trying to kill the monster. Yeah, you you have the silver chains, right. and you see that yeah. affect the monster when it first gets wrapped around. That also brings me to another big video game point where it's like, okay, I'm all set for this fight. Everything goes wrong immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah. I think that's a credit to the, the production team and to the directing because they they were working with the with C D Project Red yeah. on the series. And I think that's probably what's led to that series mm-hmm. being as successful as it is. You've got a good cast, you've got a good set of directors that have done it, you've got a great writing team, your production team's done their homework. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. And there are really good moments, not just this one, throughout both seasons of the series where you're like, that just felt straight from the video game. Mm-hmm. Beautifully done beautifully done one final thought just on the character motivation side of that because you get the sense whether we're talking about the witchers who for our purposes here we'll say are the martial classes or the spellcasters, and we're watching yennefer's development they both either have gone through or are currently going through a society that is going to give them new abilities but is extremely controlling mm. and so it does make a lot of sense that for Geralt agency matters so much when he's going into a fight. Mm-hmm. The Striga does not have agency of her own versus the guys that he mows down in episode one. Yeah, yeah, they made that choice. So what I want to get into uh, at this point is uh, we're, we're going to kind of go uh, with Marvel for a little bit here. I want to start with Daredevil, actually. And, and we're not even going super far in it. We're just going to stay very much uh, in the beginning. But nobody is really doing that style of unarmed combat besides Marvel right now. Mm-hmm. So the the fight that I actually want to start on is the first fight at the end of the first episode. So this is the knife-wielding assassin who goes to Karen Page. He goes to kill her in her apartment because... Because she knows things that she shouldn't. she knows things, exactly. And Daredevil shows up and beats the ever-living crap out of him. Uh, and, and gets stabbed. A little bit. And I, I do have a point to make with that. Okay. So, knife fighting. Yeah. You do not come out of a knife fight without being cut to shit. It doesn't happen. You see it in film, whatever, like, okay, they took a cut here, they took a cut there. The winner of a knife fight is not the one who doesn't get touched it's the one who didn't bleed out first there is so much blood and danger in that close of proximity of a fight this is why humans as just individuals have tried to move combat further and further and further away from their opponent hands suck knives suck swords still kind of suck so let's <laughs> you know let's start getting into you let's know, push your arrows guns yeah. spears yeah, keep, keep that guy away from me. It's ridiculous, and it's scary. That style of combat moves so fast that it literally looks like that, uh, <laughs> what you grew up seeing, the, 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 the like flailing hands just trying to get at each other. That's what a knife fight looks like because you are so close and you are actively trying to both injure your opponent and keep their knife away from yours, and it's just all over the place. 
That being said, you hardly ever see that in any sort of film representation of combat because you can't see it. In a film, you want to be able to show off the moves, so it's going to be slower. However, you can still do it in a way that looks more realistic or you can kind of go in another direction where it's like, okay, this is too slow. What I love about this scene is that you do actually get some really good bits of combat, but you also get so much information about Matt Murdock and how he fights and just the way he does things. So you immediately see both here and in the hallway scene in the next episode. Mm, so good. What he immediately goes for almost 100% of the time is to disorient his opponent because he can sense everything around him. That is his ability, is that he is 100% aware of his battlefield in front, beside, behind, all of it. That is where he gets his power from. So if he can run in and disorient his opponent immediately, like he does in this fight, he starts it off, he sees the guy with the knife, and he goes and he slams him into a table, immediately disorienting him, getting him off kilter, getting that knife more out of the way. And this is a very common thread for Daredevil. One of the really fun things is that a lot of these these moves and these maybe openings that aren't so great you don't really see in that first playthrough because of good editing good camera shots all of that all of that is a part of it something that is maybe a mix of not great combat and good combat is really quickly into that fight after that disorienting uh, blow into the table we get the knife in there, but what they do with the choreography is they lock it up in the arms and you immediately start to see them throwing knees, legs. That lockup, maybe not so much. It would be pretty easy to go in there and be getting cuts, but the fact that they're immediately switching and being dynamic with the attacks that they're throwing and the way that they are fighting each other is just so much fun to watch. When you start adding in all of that dynamic movement, that's when you're like, okay, someone who knows how to fight made this <laughs> and you especially get that in more recent stuff with the prevalence of like mma that is brought into most good fight scenes in current current franchises another thing that i really like about that scene after we kind of get that pause a couple more things that it tells you about matt murdoch is this also really shows you how he does combat when they're outside in the second half in the rain you get that knife that shot of the knife going through the rain and mm -hmm. how he hears the knife hitting the droplets of rain and that's how he tells where it is. You get the insane amount of determination and willpower that he possesses when he's lying on the concrete bleeding from all over the place. You're just like, nope, gotta get up and take care of this. And you see that again and again and again. And that's when I'll move into the hallway fight. That entire episode, he is, like, stabbed. He's practically dead for most of it. And then he goes and he fights, what, 20 guys in yeah. the hallway? Yeah, <laughs> he, like, takes 20 guys apart. Because he will not stop. And that, honestly, to me, is the biggest thing that you can know about Matt Murdock and who he is as Daredevil, is that he will not give up. Um, there are a couple of other really good um, points in that scene specifically where it kind of reinforces 
those different things about Daredevil. It shows you like, okay, he's doing this so well because of his abilities. Like when he bursts into that first room, he already knows where everybody is, which gives him an insane advantage because none of them know. He's not going to be surprised by somebody who is behind the door. He goes in, he knows where everybody is, and he throws them into a panic. Again, getting that disorientation. He takes them out by surprise, by taking out their senses. And then when he throws the dude out the door and the other guy from the other room starts walking down the hallway and immediately gets the computer tower bashed into his head, like, he knew he was there. Mm -hmm. And it just does a really good job of showing what he's capable of. Is it realistic? No. But it's a superhero. But it's a superhero. So it makes sense, and the elements of the story are in there. So I call that a beautiful fight you have the storytelling you do have good combat in there good punches and combinations being thrown opportunities and advantages being taken when they show up another thing that shows his abilities is the fact that during that fight he barely takes any hits mm -hmm. he always knows where his opponents are and he goes in and bop 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 they're down dodge dodge bop 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 they're down and he doesn't really take any hits until the end of that fight and i just think it it beautifully shows how you can have a really good fight while still having superpowered individuals by showing how that stuff is happening they don't just have it happen they show you this is how he is perceiving things i really love when cinematography can show you that instead of you just having to be told or inferring i think there's two other things that scene does really well it makes use of the viewer's imagination because those bits where he goes into the rooms and you hear the fighting but you don't see it at this point you've seen enough of daredevil and how he fights you can picture what's going on in yeah. that room so it fills in that gaps but it, it still builds the tension because yeah. you're like okay i'm not quite sure what's happening i just hear you know these punches and grunts being hit and i love the way that scene ends when he finally gets to the boy who's been kidnapped and he takes off his mask to show him okay no you're safe i'm here to help you well, he puts the demon back in mm -hmm. and that's another thing that these fights show super well is that he has all of these abilities he has all this dexterity he does you know some of those flips which are ridiculous don't get me started um, <laughs> <laughs> anytime they do that i'm like yeah it looks cool but <laughs> but it shows his origins as a street brawler yeah that's well, just and, and watching does. his dad be a boxer mm -hmm. you get it i think you do especially with matt murdoch you see in his stance, you yeah, see he, a lot of that boxer, mm -hmm. American up. boxer fight, and he, and he gets down roped and ring. He, he gets down, and, yeah. yeah, mixed with the training from stick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like fight scenes that are long takes too, specifically because mm -hmm. it, Cause it's hard. It's a lot <laughs> harder to do. You have to be a lot more technical with it, and I you think can't it just was use the cuts to show the violence because that can be very easy. Yeah. Mm. I think yeah. it was Winter Soldier was one that I had a little oh, bit trouble yeah, following yeah. the combat because there were so many cuts. That's actually a fantastic segue because Winter Soldier is what I want to go into next. Nice. Let's rock and roll. And just to um, <laughs> go off of that point that you just made is that was something that I was paying attention to uh, a lot as well. Specifically, I think in the scene where they are trying to take down Fury, those cuts happen so quickly. If you're actually paying attention to that, it's so disorienting, which fits. But also what amazed me is how they could have these like half second shots and still tell uh, a through story. 
It was, it was really interesting to me. I wasn't really trying to take notes or anything on the fight itself, but it was just something that I noticed because I was when, in that uh, mindset. When Nick Fury gets ambushed? Yeah, by the police. Yeah. Right. Mm. Getting into the actual combat scenes of that. So right at the beginning, we have Cap on the boat taking out the regular human guys. Woof. Um, Bartok the Leaper. Oh, it is... <laughs> Uh, I will be referring to that man as GSP because that is who he is. <laughs> George St. Pierre is an MMA fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hall of Fame classic. Yeah, one of the absolute best. We'll get to that in a second, but what Cap running through the boat and just taking out those guys does is just shows you how insanely powerful, strong, and skilled Captain America is. Literally, these trained mercenaries whose job is to mercenary mercenary kill people steal stuff you know like (laughs) their job is to fight and he goes and he takes care of them like effectively their children he kicks the dude and he flies 50 feet that kick alone would have you know that man's not that man's not getting up tomorrow that is is not getting up ever Uh, the the amount of force that it would take to send somebody flying like that is death. <laughs> After all of that, you get that fairly short fight between George St. Pierre and Captain. In the beginning of that fight, that is some fantastic fighting. It doesn't show a ton of story, but what this fight does is actually sets you up for later in the movie. In this fight, you see something that Marvel and a lot of films don't do very often which is these quick strikes so you see hits being thrown followed milliseconds after inches behind with another blow something to open up an area and then attack it obviously captain america is a super soldier so it doesn't do anything to him he just blocks it but you see these quick dynamic fast attacks from the mma fighter quick combinations getting his knees his legs in there and he's pushing cap back just with the strength of his technique that's all and that is really really good combat then the second half of it cap drops his shield and the combat slows by almost like half when gsp starts throwing his attacks they are so slow because they need to make cap look good (laughs) because he's fighting a super soldier Mm -hmm. so you get these big wide swings with no follows up just blocks and then other big swings and captain just starts taking it to him and that fights over in five seconds that obviously tells a story it shows you how powerful captain is it shows you what good technique without any super strength behind it can do now completely moving on to something else the first time that captain and bucky fight essentially all that is is the fight reimagined between two super soldiers, not just a super soldier and a regular guy. You see that strength of technique. You see this man who for the past 70 years has done nothing but kill people. The absolute terror and destructive force that is the Winter Soldier. You get those super fast attacks with those falls up. It's beautiful, beautiful combat, and he's just pushing Captain back the entire time, throwing that knife all around, getting the legs involved, all of it. And how that speed and that technique, when put together with a super soldier, is just terrifying. And how absolutely murderous and unstoppable this individual is. 
you have to compare and contrast all that stuff. There's a reason why they have these fights right at the beginning and most often right at the end. Mm -hmm. Because one is setting up so you know what to expect from your character and then getting them shut down. And what that does is that really allows you to see power dynamics and how people line up to each other. That's something that I actually notice a lot when you're doing like TV series where these different people are fighting each other or across separate movies where it's like, okay, they're super powerful here, but now they're having trouble with this person. That doesn't make sense. You get that a lot in, with Asgardians. That yeah. happens all over the place where in one sense, it's like, okay, this super powered guy that he's fighting, he literally threw two football fields away and now he's fighting mostly regular dude and he's having a hard time. That happens a lot in the Thor movies. I wonder if it if it isn't trying to show, because there are heroes, right? If it mm -hmm. isn't trying to show that our heroes are willing to show restraint when dealing with lesser Absolutely. beings, yeah. quote Absolutely. unquote. And Jumping that... from Marvel to DC, I feel like I live in a world made of cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> the fact yeah. that Superman's actually pulling his punches mm -hmm. probably 99% of the time. <laughs> yeah. Right? Otherwise, people would be flying off the planet. And that is actually a, a big point made through all of this is that in most of these fights where those openings are not being taken advantage of you can tell that these characters are not trying to kill each other so when you see that really good fighting that all-out destructive force like from the winter soldier against captain like he is trying to kill him right there right then and you get beautiful combat because of it and cap's kind of like on his back foot yeah, the entire time. He's, he's not had to go up against anybody who can go toe-to-toe to -to -toe with him. In a long time. Not, yeah, literally not, not since, since Red World Skull. War II. Yeah. In my opinion, the only reason that Captain is able to defeat the Winter Soldier is because he gets in his head. There is no way that he is a better fighter than the Winter Soldier. He gets in his head, and that is how he beats him. Because Bucky is all like... I know this guy. I don't... What's going on? He is not fully in it. And it backs off in that same way that I was talking about with GSP, where, like, you start to see those slower, more heavily choreographed things that are supposed to make it look more even. Much more of that in their final fight right at the end of the movie. Another thing that I wanted to bring up really quick is just a tenant of combat in general. And the way that I was first introduced to it was in... A book on German longsword, so that's just how I refer to it. But it's the fore and the knock. It's the before and the after. Meaning that in order to win a fight, you have to be pressing the entire time. If you are not the one attacking, you are not going to win. You cannot win by defending. So you are in the fore, the before. As soon as you fall into the knock, your opponent is fighting you. You're not fighting them. Interesting. And that is exactly what is happening between George St. Pierre and Captain in that first scene, is you see him pressing the attack, and that's why he can push him back. It's because he is taking that initiative. He is taking the fight to him. He is not giving Captain any time to think and launch attacks of his own, which is a base tenant of combat. I do have a bit that I just want to throw out, because this is probably currently my favorite fight. And that is in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. The combat in that series is some of my favorite in Marvel in general. Because what else are you going to do with people who mainly fight with their fists? You're going to have fantastic fight choreography. And what I want to highlight is the fight with 
Sam and Bucky versus John Walker right after he's been powered up. Another fight between two superpowered soldiers and someone who isn't. And what we get through this is honestly a head-on-head fight between Bucky and John with Falcon running interference. He very rarely gets involved in it because if he does, he'd die immediately. One hit, done. You see Bucky going in there and them getting these big, hard hits, these fast, quick movements, tons of great body movement, dynamic, all over the place. And then you get Falcon running in and like, oh, he's about to hit my guy? Boom, no, he's not. There's that wing. And then using his higher mobility to help that fight along. You do see him take a couple of big hits from John, but those actually do keep him out of the fight for a while, which is exactly what would happen he just took a direct hit regardless of how skilled he is at fighting superpowered beings which he is which is the only reason he survives this fight to minimize those blows and know how to land and know how to take those hits and then he's out for 30 seconds and then back in one of my favorite little bits in there is that this is one of the few places where you actually see the fighters take advantage of those openings. There was one that specifically stood out in my mind after John has torn Sam's wings off and Bucky gets in there and they're just grappling and they're going at it. They're fighting up here, like eye level up above the shield. John sees the open gut and he takes it just immediately. And you don't see that in a lot of fighting that is not specifically like a boxing movie. That's the sort of stuff that someone who actually knows how to fight would do. They see that opening and you take it. It's not a big shot. It's not going to take him down, but it's going to hurt him. That like sort him of with bug bites kind of. Yeah. Idea. And that's right, sort of attention build up. to detail is one of the things that makes that one of my favorite fights. There's a ton there. And there's a bunch of really big players that mm-hmm. really we can't, don't really key into this just because of how overpowered they are. Yeah. Because you have people like Iron Man and Thor who can just, mm-hmm. you know, wipe out a group of people, but then you also have people like Black Widow who, yeah. well, I can punch people. Well, and I don't <laughs> so think you have to have that range. Yeah. I'm going to electric you. And I don't think it's an accident that the best, some of the best fight choreography in the whole MCU comes out of the first outing for the Russos and trying to do an espionage thriller. Because you can also see the influence of something like the Bourne movies mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. the fights are choreographed. Oh, yeah. And, and when you have two fighters Ooh. that are at a really high skill level going at that. The pen oh, fight man, and the, the first pen fight. Oh. The first one, I can't believe I didn't think of that beforehand. That is brutal. Talk about a knife fight where everybody gets hurt. That pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> And and it's true, and there's a reason why I'm gravitating more towards the Captain America stuff, because he's one of those few heroes, and the heroes surrounded in him, that he doesn't really use a weapon. He uses his fists, and his physique, and and yeah, he uses guns a bit here and there, but for the most part... When Captain America throws his mighty shield. Yeah. (laughs) And, And he'll throw that, and he'll use that as a weapon, but most of the time when he's in the thick of it, that stays on his arm. And it's just hand-to-hand combat. And as it went along, they started doing it better and better and better, Uh, which is why I think that Falcon and Winter Soldier is some of my favorite fighting them up. They've also had, obviously you talked about the MMA influence Mm -hmm. for like Winter Soldier specifically, but between Iron Fist and Shang-Chi, there's a lot of Kung Fu influence on Marvel as well. No, I have things to say about (laughs) Shang-Chi. Uh-oh. Just because of that, just because of that, we'll go into Three Musketeers. Yes. Um, 
I grew up with this movie. It's one of my favorites. This is also another movie that, to me, informed my love of swordplay, swashbuckling, all of that. I saw this at a very young age. Absolutely loved it. The combat in it is dog. <laughs> it's not that bad. There are good there elements. There are good parts. In, there are. But those are the exception, not the rule. One of the things that I think I'm going to argue for the sake of sure. you should go watch this movie. 1993, Three Musketeers, produced by Disney. Mm-hmm. The cast. Oh my god. It's so ridiculous. Now this does not mean I don't like the movie. Oh no. I love the movie's this movie. so good. The movie's so good. Because it's so ridiculously <laughs> horrible. The cast, your mm. villain, your main villain is Tim Curry. Yes. I'm already on board. Right. right. The three musketeers themselves are played by Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> Amazing. Oliver Platt. Oliver Platt and Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen. Also just we glossed over one of the most insane aspects of Tim Curry as the villain. He's playing a Catholic cardinal. Yeah. The most cardinal, pervy <laughs> cardinal known to man. Yeah, it's, uh, it's rough. It's a bad... Well, in Dumas Road, that was the villain, right? But Yeah. And then his, his lieutenant, uh, his Rochefort. captain of the guard, Rochefort. But he's in Treasure Planet. Oh, nice. He voice acts uh, in Treasure Planet. He is uh, Bug Eyes, um, mm. Mr. Scroop. Okay. Which I always loved, Treasure Planet, so it was a kind of a cool yeah. discovery. It's a great movie. It is a great movie. But the it combat? didn't take itself super seriously. <laughs> which is why it's so fun. Which is why it's so fun. Chris O'Donnell, I think that's the only person we didn't really mention. He plays, young Chris O'Donnell plays D'Artagnan. Yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, right, seriously. It's fun. It's a fun movie. And it had a lot of really fun combat. Yes. It's cool to watch. It's flashy. One thing, and, and we'll get into this too because we can't talk about this sort of thing and not bring in the princess bride oh yeah but one thing that i will say is that uh, that they do quite well is body movement for being rapier fencers they have much more of that back and forward lunging and uh, body movement that you expect to see you would you know this yeah yeah yeah, yeah. as a fencer yeah. of that type of weapon. They do that much better. That's kind of where it ends. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very stylized, but you do see you see the footwork, you do see the body movement, for, for sure, because yeah. the point of a rapier or a, a French court sword mm-hmm. or any of those long, slender blades yeah. is, uh, as Antonio Banderas said in Zorro, the pointy end goes into the other man. Yes. For the most part, stick that it, is... Stick him with the pointy end. Yeah, for the most part, that is the truth. Uh, and especially in sport fencing, that's the only way you get points mm-hmm. in two of the three main styles. Yeah, that is done much better than the fighting in Princess Bride. That specific element of it is a thrusting weapon primarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that I, I just have to bring up is is Porthos. <laughs> it's because you are Porthos. I am Porthos. But <laughs> that man does not fight in that entire movie. No. He does ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't actually work. He's got a bunch of gadgets. Yes. Absolutely. A, he just pulls out things like he's a an artificer. He's a, an artificer. That's what he is. <laughs> there you go. He's an artificer. I love, it. I love it so much. And I love that character, but he doesn't fight worth <laughs> One point that I really want to make about Porthos is in the first fight where you see him going, his, uh, his opponent, he does this move where he literally moves his opponent's sword from safe outside of him next to his neck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on the inside. Yeah. 
takes the time to pull out his sword breaker, <laughs> snips it onto the end, and breaks the dude's sword. He would be so, so dead. dead. <laughs> but it's so much fun. But it is so much fun. And it, and it tells that story. Like, yeah, it's bad combat. Straight up, it's bad combat. Oh, no, combat. it completely is. But it is so fun. And then you have Athos. Mm-hmm. And Athos is the most serious one. It's Keith yes. or Sutherland. And I think his combat's also the most serious throughout yes. the movie. Yes. I, I would. He was just prepping for 24. <laughs> I guess, right? That probably didn't come out. That's still seven years before that came out. Yeah. But still. It's, it's but very yes. early prep. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell that also him, like his character and him as a person is taking that combat more seriously. Which brings us to the end fight. Yeah. Between first. Athos, Kingford, Sutherland, yeah. and Rochefort, Rochefort, where you actually do get to see some decent rapier combat. It's quick flurries and back again. Quick flurries, back again. They're testing each other out. And you see Rochefort, unlike most film that you see, take advantage of these openings. Oh, Athos is on the ground? Great. I can't kill him, but I can get above his sword and hit his arm. Yeah. Which... You would Absolutely. do. Absolutely. 100%. You want to kill him with bug bites, opponent. baby. You, yeah. Whatever you can do. Because the goal, if if the two men are trying to kill each other, your goal is to survive. Yes. And, or, by surviving, you have to kill the other guy. Mm-hmm. And particularly from the villainous characters, you'll notice, we see characters take advantage. Yes. Which they should. If you are fighting someone, this will bring up that point of honor, respect, all of that. Like... You, there are no rules. You are fighting to win. And when they switch out Athos with D'Artagnan, you still get actually really good, period, accurate moves from Rochefort. D'Artagnan sucks. Well, uh. that's, the, that's the other thing. Athos and Rochefort are on the same level. Yes. Athos just got the, the, the raw end of the deal because he was combat-weary by the time he arrived at yes. the fight. Rochefort and D'Artagnan are not on the same level. We've seen D'Artagnan be successful against the rank-and-file henchmen. Yeah, he's definitely better than them. But he is not a master by any means. He's not even a musketeer yet. Right. He does not have the training or the experience. And it's very evident. And also, like, some of that is that, and some of that is just, like... The choreography is ridiculous. So oh, I'm going to hop up onto this banister. <laughs> right. I'm going to... He's not even going to have to kill me. I'm going to fall and break my neck. Yeah. And then jumps down two stories, lands, and it's no big deal. But to go into Princess Bride. The Princess Bride. The fighting in this, again, not fantastic. But the storytelling is better than almost anything else that you've seen. And that's why we all remember it. Even before the fight between Wesley and Inigo starts... You can see the two of them bonding. They like each other. However, they know that they need to fight each other and win. This is literally, and and I, I don't use master lightly because it is a legitimate title that still is given out today, but they do use that term in the film. Two masters at their craft, and Inigo is so outmatched by Wesley. And this brings up a really good point, is I know no more loving community than the fighting community. Fighting someone brings you so close to them. (laughs) It's honestly one of the best bonding experiences. In the entire fight between the two of them, you can see them just enjoying 
every aspect of it. There are so many openings and parts where they could have taken advantage. They could have ended the fight so easily and showboating between the two of them that are never taken advantage of because they're just enjoying having that good of an opponent. That takes me back to the Zorro movie yeah. with the, the fight between Antonio Banderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones in the stables. <laughs> they're fighting each other, but it's, it's flirtatious. Yeah, You have all of this back and forth. Uh, between the two of them where you learn so much about both characters and so much about Wesley because this is the first time we're seeing him after he's been gone for years and you one get to not only just see the extent of his abilities but also who he is as a person this guy who he needs to defeat in order to accomplish his goal but who met him with friendship and honor and artistry and he meets him in kind when he beats him, he's like, no, I'm not going to kill you. I he literally has destroy one. a stained glass window, window than kill an artist such as yourself or a master such as yeah, yourself. An, an like artist. That. He does say yeah, artist. I think he says artist. And then he knocks, knocks him, him on the back of the head. And to continue that into the other two kidnappers, Fezzik and Bassini, Fezzik could have killed him immediately, <laughs> but he doesn't. He it could have been your head. He meets him with honesty. Sportsmanlike. Sportsmanlike. And because of that, he leaves him. I put down my sword and you put down your rock and we try to kill each other like civilized people. Yeah. But then it's not my fault. I'm the biggest and the strongest. I don't even exercise. Exactly. <laughs> and I love it. And it's so good. Yeah. It's short, but it's so good. And it tells you, it reinforces again that this is not a bad person. Then we meet Vicini, who is a scumbag, <laughs> who uses deceit, trickery, is literally threatening an unarmed, bound prisoner. And he meets that with cunning and ruthlessness of his own. If you want to reenact that entire scene, I can get up and let John come in here. <laughs> John does Absolutely. know it by heart. Hired for your brain. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. Unemployed in Greenland. God, it's such a great movie. It's and, so good. You know, again, it. but that's also a movie that didn't, really take itself super seriously and part of the reason why it's lived on so long again looking at the three musketeers zorro even to an extent there was something about those that that 1990 to 1999 era where we got some really great movies that multiple people at this table grew up with because you know that's our age how do you guys feel about robin hood prince of thieves that was bad (laughs) fun but bad it's too long for a second there, because we were talking about a Carrie Elwes film, I thought you were going to say Men in Tights. Well, yes. All of us were thinking that's where it was going. No, Prince of Thieves is cool. The Um, soundtrack's great. Kevin Costner's a terrible Robin Hood. On the other side, Alan Rickman is a brilliant villain. Oh, so good. Because Alan Rickman was a brilliant villain, just in general. One of my favorite things about the combat in Princess Bride is how often it's keyed to the music, and specifically big musical hits. When he stabs the R.U.S., the, Burm. Burm. the fight at the end with the Blah. count. Yeah, yep. when he blocks. So the music good. hits are hysterical for it's, that movie. It's beautiful. John always loves it when we say well, it's time to talk about Star Wars and the second hour of recording an episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I we've been here for two hours? Not quite. We definitely crossed into the second hour of recording. Oh. So, yeah, I apologize. We have two more hours to go then. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to go... In order of release, because the combat definitely evolves so, with the time. In I do our have world. an order that I want to talk. So I want to start with episode five, Luke versus Vader. Cloud Con- City. Cloud City, classic combat. What we see here is 
beautiful swordplay, but also beautiful storytelling. You can't talk about the combat in Star Wars without talking about Darth Vader. Because he is such a big, looming presence that anything that he does is significant. When you see Luke first appear, one, he's a and he draws first. But, you know, he knows what's going to go down. But you see him, he takes his big two-handed stance, he's ready to do it, and Vader, one hand, okay, let's see what you can do. And he puts him through the ringer with one hand. Vader's terrifyingness comes from the fact that he if doesn't he, have to move. Yeah, if he tries, thousands of people are going to die. Not just his opponent. Mm-hmm. So and he wants to be challenged. And I think you, you begin to see that idea in the original trilogy, especially in this fight, where he's not dedicated to it. He's he's toying with Luke. Yes. He wants to be challenged yeah it's you know putting the cart before the horse a little bit but like at no point during that fight is vader trying to kill luke or he would be dead Mm -hmm. and and i have very specific points to illustrate that really quick he's just pushing him back there at the beginning you get these big heavy really untrained strikes from luke just trying to use his youth and his strength to essentially bully vader and you see just the tiniest little bit of movement just flick it away flick it away which is exactly what a master swordsman would do to an inexperienced fighter especially one that he's not actively trying to kill he's just playing with him luke just gets completely pushed back all goes according to vader's plan falls down on the pit activated oh you're not very powerful but he gets out and immediately after that we see him go on the offensive against vader and actually do decently well and this brings up a a classic pairing of youth versus experience it is the classic matchup of combat because as you get older you get more experienced and you are able to do your moves and your techniques so much better but your stamina and your strength continue to go down whereas youthful not as much experience not as great of technique but he can keep going and going and going and so after that quick bout the fact that vader did not finish him quickly is what gives luke an in back into this fight very interesting you say all the strikes that vader is using in that fight are what a master swordsman would do because in that scene he's played by a master swordsman Mm -hmm. he's played by bob anderson because david prowse who normally played him in the suit was too strong he kept breaking the bending yep oh i can see that they had to scale vader down for this fight is what you're what you're telling me but the thing is with that type of fighting these big strong two-handed strikes are not necessary if you know fencing at all your point basically stays in the same place throughout the entire fight and all you have to do is move your hands basically in a circle around it so when he's doing these attacks point staying in Uh, in towards his opponent's chest the slash comes up and just boom just brief movement of the hand deflects point still facing towards him so if he so desired dead block dead just a quick lunge forward and and that point goes right goes right to the box Mm -hmm. right home and that drives home this point that at no point in this is vader trying to kill luke when you get to the end of the fight Mm -hmm. vader's trying to convert luke yes and and the fight's well written because yeah. 
we see that Vader isn't attempting. Yeah, yeah. They, sh- they show before they tell. Yeah. They don't let yourself be destroyed is Obi-Wan did. Yes. After Luke kicks Vader down into the lower portion of the facility that they're at, mm-hmm. when we see Vader again, what he immediately does is acknowledge the fact that, okay, you do have some skill, you do have some power with that slow move to dual wielding his sword, his lightsaber. This is him being like, okay, I'll take this more seriously. And then he proceeds to not use his lightsaber. (laughs) (laughs) Literally just throws force objects at Luke, which is something that, honestly, you really only see the Sith doing. I'll, I'll come back to this point, but this is where we separate Luke and Vader even more, is that Luke is not used to using the force in combat, whereas Vader, and I'll pull this from also... The current series, Kenobi, not only is a master swordsman, but is constantly aware through the force of his surroundings and the weapons and resources that he has at his disposal. And that is where he is dangerous. Kenobi, Rogue One, Mm -hmm. I think, did a really good job of bringing back how terrifying Vader could be with with another hallway scene Mm -hmm. at the very end of Rogue One where he's holding men against the bulkhead of the ship as he walks past and then cuts them in pieces. Yeah. His mastery of the Force and his ability to wield a lightsaber is what makes Vader very dangerous. Yeah. And how dangerous he is with a lightsaber, which we see all over the place, that is the least of his abilities mm. by a large margin. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. But something that I do want to bring up, because uh, I, I will kind of have this through line through all three trilogies, is the idea of how we know Force wielders fight. And that is Jedi, Sith, all of these people actively look into the future while they are fighting. And that is where we get blaster shots being deflected and the flips and spins and everything from the prequel series, which we'll get to in a moment. But we see Luke once again be completely taken over by Vader, get thrown out. And then when we see them again on the bridge, going at it in earnest, and Vader is still just just sword fighting him not throwing anything in there the second that luke actually injures him his hand's gone the second it happens which is just like okay i'm done boom hands gone he's such a larger force that the second he realizes oh this upstart actually hit me well that's this is over now and then we'll we'll pull into this a little bit talking about kenobi but what i love about this fight and some of our more current canon, whether it's the movies or the series or whatever, is we get to line up characters according to their power. We get to see here Vader versus Luke and how terrifying Vader is. And then in especially Kenobi, Rogue One, we get to see how terrifying Vader is. And Luke beats him. Fair point. I mean, the old canon, Luke was terrifyingly powerful. Oh, in the old canon, it it, it is canon that he was the most powerful force wielder. Like, moving into the prequels, we have excellent sword fighting. We have a pretty decent use of how the force can be used as a weapon to hurl objects and do People that sort of thing. We get the start of that, but we don't really get life. this... <laughs> we don't really yet get this idea of that like prescient sort of fighting. Duel of the Fates is a phenomenal cinematic masterpiece. 
the music, the flashiness of what's happening, the, the, the movement all around is, is beautiful. It's fun to watch. It's super fun. It's not great fighting. There are so many openings. And for the fact that we as film watchers have not really been keyed into why Jedi are able to deflect blaster shots and have all of these spins and still end up in the exact right spot wherever they are is one of the only major failings, in my opinion, of the style of fighting that we see throughout the entirety of the prequels. If you're deeper into the Star Wars lore, the books, the comics, some of the more recent stuff, we know that that is how and why Jedi can fight like that, but that is not shown to us in the prequels. They don't ever explain it, either verbally or visually. And that, to me, is a failing there, but it's still super fun to watch. There are really good moments of, of combat within that fight. Darth Maul specifically is one of the most entertaining fighters to watch in any of this because he is Thank so you, dynamic. Park. Thank yeah. you, Ray Park. Oh, I mean, goodness. yeah, he and he came out and did something that we hadn't seen at all. Mm -hmm. What other force wielder have we seen basically in any of the film canon that uses so much of their body besides their lightsaber? Mm. the kicks he's throwing it's amazing he's constantly moving his body up and down different levels being dynamic with the feet one of the shots where he kicks obi-wan kenobi off the bridge literally behind the back off foot like hits him in the chin it's amazing it is amazing beautiful combat that's so much fun to watch but there's also moments like where obi-wan and qui-gon jinn are jumping up onto one of the bridges to face Maul, and he's standing there right at the edge, totally within, they would be dead there. Yeah, if, if he wanted to kill them that way. And here's the thing, though, is that we can infer through what we see throughout that entirety that he is trying to do nothing except kill them. The storytelling does not give a reason for him to not kill them. So that, for me, that's bad fighting. Because there's no story element in there to excuse openings not taken and moving forward with the mall character going into rep like a uh, clone wars series and rebels series that is mall's failing hmm. all throughout they take that the fact that he didn't take the kill when he had the opportunity because he likes to toy with his opponents and, mm -hmm. and prove that he's a superiority complex he likes to prove he's the best and prove yeah. that he's the vastly superior to everyone around him ultimately leads leads him to failing because he mm -hmm. gets so bogged down in these big convoluted hairballed schemes that things fall apart. I think that all ties directly back to the to the way he fights in the Duel of the Fates. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like somebody saw that afterwards and said, we need to think of a good reason for why this man didn't just eviscerate now that is two one of the of, Jedi Knights. And that is one of actually the main points throughout all of this. And one thing that I think that Disney is doing really well with Star Wars is that they are adding canon that makes older things make more sense. And I do really appreciate that and enjoy that about these films. Um, some of the first look at this idea of prescient fighting that we get is when Obi-Wan gets walked down and it is just Qui-Gon versus Maul. You see these beautiful, quick moves that are actually, the way that I look at it, very reminiscent of the German longsword style. Mm -hmm. That, uh, oh, especially from Qui-Gon. Yeah, it, from Qui-Gon. Just the speed of those attacks and him knowing where he needs to have his blade while also being incredibly aggressive as a fighter. Qui-Gon is a dueling master, but he becomes predictable. 
And Maul, with that fantastic dynamic fighting style of his, does something that he has not done through the entire fight. And when Qui-Gon goes for that big strike, hits him with the hilt of his lightsaber because he doesn't need to go for the kill shot. That right there, that is beautiful fighting. Using something that your opponent hasn't seen to make an opening and then take advantage of it. And we don't see that enough. What I loved about Rebels is that they brought that exact fighting play for play back for an episode where they did finally kill Maul. Mm -hmm. And Obi-Wan drops into the stance he saw his master use and he knows Maul is going to bring that hilt up and when Maul goes to use, when it make, Obi makes it look like he faints. He makes it look like mm-hmm. he's going to drop a large overhand strike. Maul brings the hilt of his blade up, and Obi Wan just steps back just enough to split Maul's saber and drive the point right down Maul's yep. center. Cuts him half the correct way this time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And and I I won't lie. He courted I have him. Not. Yeah. I have not watched uh, much of the animated Star Wars. That's not really something that I have gotten into. Some of which they brought Ray Park back for. To do they did. Yeah. They did. They yeah. brought Ray Park back for all of Maul's combat in the final season of Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they used the motion capture. They used pieces of his motion capture from that to do Rebels, I think. But I know they brought him back for, for the final season of the Clone Wars. Yeah. And you can tell. The way Maul fights in that. Oh. Mm-hmm. And you can tell it's the man who did it. The man who originally brought it back. He's a little bit older now, obviously, so it's a little bit less dynamic, but then the, the character got older. We talked about earlier just that idea of, okay, if you want to win the battle, you have to be on the attack. Mm-hmm. And that's also when we see the Jedi overcome, whether it is Obi-Wan going after Darth Maul aggressively at the mm-hmm. end after Qui-Gon has fallen, or if you will not turn to the dark side, then perhaps she will. And Return of the Jedi also not great in its choreography but in terms of its emotional stakes and then it's once Luke deploys I believe the technical term is a storm mm-hmm. Vader finally goes down yeah Luke rages mm-hmm. it's okay yeah. he rages and he uses at that point his his training is advanced enough his experience is advanced enough and his power his raw power is enough mm-hmm. to overcome the powerhouse that is Vader yeah in that fight specifically just to wrap up Duel of Fates very quickly oh, okay yeah 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 we still have when Obi-Wan comes in. The unmatched ferocity of that series of attacks that he throws at Maul is just so much fun to watch. It's probably some of the worst actual fighting in that entire <laughs> scene, but it is so much fun to watch. From a technical standpoint, it's probably some of the worst. Yes, yeah. from a technical standpoint, but the speed at which they're moving and all of these attacks and blocks, so fast. That, that is Jedi Prussian fighting right there. That is him knowing exactly where that stuff will be, where he needs to counter, where he needs to hit. It, it's great. I love it. To, to kind of try and bring this all home a little bit, uh, we will move into the sequel trilogy. And the fight that I want to talk about here to really kind of distill the style of these three movies down is the fight that when... Um, Ray and Kylo Ren fight the Praetorian Guard. I think they're called the Praetorian Guard. The, Snokes, the guys in red. Yeah, Snoke's, Snoke's elite dudes. That fight, so much fun to watch. This is the only good part of the movie. Well, it's <laughs> one of the few good parts of the movie. But this fighting in here is so different from anything else in Star Wars that we've gotten because it is raw, it is honestly very untrained, and it's instinctual. 
And here you start seeing all of these different elements that Disney is trying to bring into the way that force wielders fight. The idea that we've gotten from Boba Fett and Clone Wars of the fact that if the soul is in turmoil, the lightsaber is heavy, especially if it is one that like has history. So like the dark saber, so heavy, he can barely wield it. Kylo Ren's lightsaber is made with Vader's old crystal. He is so used to, and, and it shows, it shows Kylo Ren's character as being in turmoil all the time. That sword is so heavy to him, and it has never not been heavy to him to the point where he's just made it part of his style. Yeah. He fights as if the thing weighs 60 pounds. Because to him, it does, because that character is always being torn apart internally. Right, he's kind of like Guts just wielding a massive claymore around. It, it, feel, feel, it looks yeah. like it. It looks like it. But then you get this really cool fighting style that Kylo comes up with. It's just viscerally powerful. And, and it is dark side as f***. <laughs> oh, like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, it, the, that feeling, and, and we also got this with Rocheford's fight of the villain asserting their will and their power on their surroundings. Mm -hmm. He takes his being and he's like, this is my place. I am here and you're going to notice me. And that is incredibly indicative of the dark side of the force. Whereas when you get a light side user or a Jedi, it's more flowing with it. It's more manipulation, redirection, all of this sort of stuff, including in the different force abilities that they tend to use during combat. You have... The Sith always throwing stuff, force lightning, the choke. It's very much, let me assert my will on this space. Whereas the Jedi are absorbing the lightning or redirecting the the shot or any of this. It's taking what's in the environment and moving, moving it, it away. Directing it in a more graceful way, we'll say, than just the outright brute force that we see from the dark side. Just like again, Uncle Iroh taught me how to do. <laughs> <laughs> Lightning redirection. Exactly. And it, it really helps you and the audience on a very subconscious level to experience these characters as they're meant to be experienced. That being said, a lot of that combat, not great, but yeah, it's still fun yeah. to watch. It's fun to watch. But we don't really, in that fight, get any of that really cool force-wielding fighting that we want to see. It is all swordplay. All of it. Mm -hmm. Now, moving on to that, into episode nine, where we have the further training and all of that in the last fight where Rey and Kylo Ren are again together and they're taking down the Knights of Ren, yeah? Yeah? But... <laughs> but It got a little confusing, not gonna lie. But the lie combat in there is great storytelling because finally you see Ben being able to move like a Jedi, being able to use that prescient sort of style and Rey being able to use the force in her fighting and being able to deflect shots and do all of this stuff. And these this newer content with the technology that we have just does so much better of a job of visually showing us what is happening when they do that than the prequels. So then you combine all of these, all nine films, take those and go into The Mandalorian, Boba Fett, now Kenobi, and you get to see this beautiful amalgamation of everything that we want to see in lightsaber fighting. You get to see the brute force and just 
awesome abilities of Luke in the last episode of season two in The Mandalorian, where he, these dark troopers that one of the best warriors, non-force sensitive in the entire galaxy, could barely defeat one, and he flicks them like flies. This is the man who beat Vader. Now in Kenobi, you get very purposeful they're showing how these different lightsaber forms and that twirling and everything is is essentially like uh have have y'all ever seen the uh videos of bruce lee using nunchucks Mm -hmm. that stuff is going all over the place but he is in so much control that he knows exactly where it needs to be to hit that ping pong ball exactly where it is it's essentially that these forms with all of that they're like i can see this bolt coming and i know i need to be here and i need to be here and I need to be here. And each one of those is a deflection directly where it needs to be to take out an opponent and protect themselves. And you see that right at the beginning in the temple. And then you also see Obi-Wan start to do that as well as he's getting back into using his lightsaber. Mm -hmm. And then obviously we have all of the fighting between Vader and Reva and that entire scene that blows my mind. Uh, It's it's so beautiful and I'm not going to even bother talking about it because it's so current and it's so (laughs) amazing. It's a little too current, but I will state. And it's all of that put together so beautifully and it just, it tells you who Vader is in a way that we have not seen in these films. Did you think I didn't know I was just like, oh, goodness. Youngling. <laughs> Youngling. It's oh. so terrifying. And I love every second of that combat. When you're looking at combat, especially with, with someone like you who, who does have a good background in it, I think the trend that we're seeing is the good combat doesn't necessarily live up to all the technical standards. Yes. The good combat, especially from for our purposes, is what tells the best story and what is the most true to the characters that are exactly. doing the fight? It is about the storytelling more than anything. That's why all of us remember, like, every person that I told I was doing is like, oh, are you doing Princess Bride? Yeah. Every single one. It's not a good technical fight, but the storytelling aspect of that fight is better than any of this. And it's just so much fun to watch and be able to see every element of what it's telling us about those characters. And you notice what we really didn't cover are the historical ones. Yeah. We didn't cover a whole plethora of medieval combat mm-hmm. from XYZ movie. We didn't cover, well, we covered a little bit The Last Samurai only because I brought it up. Yeah. But those hyper-realistic movies that are doing a historical thing, then you do get bogged down in, was this technically accurate? Mm-hmm. And that stuff is still so much fun to watch i love watching a good kung fu samurai movie like all of those uh any of that stuff just it's fun for me to watch something technically and be like that was awesome but those aren't the ones that necessarily stand out when you're asked to talk about good combat when you're asked Mm -hmm. to talk about the storytelling of combat Mm -hmm. we get lists that look a lot like what we've covered today so thank you absolutely thanks for having me guys this is a joy oh my goodness yeah (laughs)
The track you just heard was The Wild Mountain Time, as recorded on the Tiger Room live album that the Ragtag Bunch did back in 2021, almost a whole year ago. We actually got a chance to go back to the Tiger Room. It was a blast. It was a sold-out show again. And on both shows, we had the pleasure of welcoming a local artist to the stage with us. Uh, And now we get to welcome him to the podcast. So, Ben... Murph, it is great to have you. Uh, local artist named The Shrugging Sisters. You can catch him around town. Uh, you can always catch him at J.K. O'Donnell's. Which which night is it? I'm there on the uh, first Wednesday of the month. First Wednesday of the month. Yeah. So you can catch The Shrugging Sisters, Mr. Benjamin Murphy, at J.K. O'Donnell's on the first Wednesday of the month. You can catch him at a couple of the farmer's markets and, uh, and various other events. We're here mostly because you hired me, and then you made the mistake of learning my name, and now you know me. We <laughs> um, used to manage for J.K. O'Donnell's. Now you run your own bartending gig you do music you do a couple of other crazy things introduce yourself to us a yes little bit. my name is benjamin murphy most important to me is the shrugging sisters i during two months of unemployment during covid wrote original music for the first time in my life that became something that i realized i was born to do and so i have kept doing it and i now play as the shrugging sisters here in fort wayne all over the place. And then I also have a event bartending business called Murph Tins Bar. So awesome. Yeah. So yeah, we go back a little ways. You brought me on to the JK O'Donnell's crew. Um, and we pretty much kind of quickly hit it off. We're both kind of nerdy. Absolutely. Steven, as we'll get to, (laughs) I wish I had a dad like you. Oh, thanks buddy. (laughs) Yeah. So then, right. We'll, we'll go ahead and jump right into it today. You are joining us to talk about your favorite movie. And if you had, told me this and I didn't know you, I might not have taken you seriously. But your favorite movie is Hook. Hook. The 1991 Steven Spielberg directed release starring Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman, Julia Roberts, Bob Hoskins from Who Framed Roger Rabbit fame. Cameos by George Lucas, if you didn't know. And Cameos by Carrie Fisher, if you didn't know. By David Crosby. Cameo by Phil Collins Phil as Collins. the investigative detective yeah. that yeah. Uh, comes in um, in London to help them find their missing children. Right. As we'll get to, I assume. But. Yeah. So uh, it's a great movie. I grew up with this movie. It's like three years older than me, but not that's not really counting anything. But it was something that was very present 
all through my childhood. And then again, as an adult, I watched it recently and I was completely taken aback because the movie was was very, very different watching it as an adult and a dad. Yes. So why is this your favorite movie? I guess that's kind of the kind of the big question. I think if you had asked me this question when I was 11, when the movie came out, I would have had a different answer than I do today. As an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, so cool, pirates! What's cooler than pirates? Pirates, Robin Williams, uh, Peter Pan. I mean, right, as a kid, what's not to love? Right, absolutely. And Robin Williams, huge fan for so many reasons that include things apart from his art and performance and comedy and dramatic roles. Aladdin as the genie. We're talking Mrs. Doubtfire. We're Mm -hmm. talking going on from that as a... uh, Maybe high school or college age. I don't remember uh, when Goodwill Hunting came out, but oh, as yeah. the therapist in Goodwill Hunting, Patch Adams. So when I was a kid, though, it would have just been this is cool. Sure, I had GI Joes. Sure, I had Legos. But the only action figures I bought or had my parents buy for me, probably as a kid, were Hook action figures. I had Hook. I had Peter Banning or Peter Pan. I had all those action figures. And then looking back on it as an adult, even before marriage or children realizing that this is really a story about the loss of wonder a human being can experience as they grow older and the reclaiming and recapturing of that wonder and inner child as an adult and not losing that as we go on through our lives. And then, of course, as I got married and as I had children, because I'm a husband and a father, I that kind of recapturing of the inner child, that recapturing of connection to my soul and recapturing of wonder was sort of refreshed every time I've seen the film. And so for quite a long time, it was my second favorite movie after Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. Uh, That is is a really good one. Which is is. not so different when it comes to wonder and childhood and and, and, and a man trying to recapture his childhood to a degree with, with, with Gene Wilder's character. But yeah. That one also kind of terrified me as a kid, be quite honest with you. There were multiple parts of that movie that just scared the ever-loving bejesus out of me. Well, if we talk about Hook, uh, there were things there's a lot of murder. scary about that <laughs> one, too. Not going to lie. There's a lot of murder. And there's, and, on... and there's a grown man that wants to kill children. Uh, yeah. And that's just the truth of that the matter. Scary. <laughs> and it's scary. It's so very scary. It's, uh, I put yeah. it on with, with my two-year-old. Mm-hmm. Sam, Luke was in the room, but he doesn't pay attention to the TV yet. Which is now, now what did you put on, Willie or uh, uh, no uh, hook. hook? Okay, great. Um, and I stopped it because I went, man, I remember this being a lot more fun. <laughs> and it really it is. Yes, when you're looking at it from that 12, 13 year old perspective, or even a little younger. But for a two year old, it's still kind of scary. What if there's a line in the movie where uh, Robin Williams says to Dustin Hoffman's Hook, "I remember you being a lot bigger." <laughs> And Dustin Hoffman says... To a 10-year-old, I'm huge. Absolutely. And that kind of feels, in a lot of ways, (laughs) how you experience the movie, right? I mean, growing up with it. Yeah, and then also revisiting it as an adult, right? Mm -hmm. So you can, potentially, there's like a male, masculine bend to this uh, film or a leaning to this movie. But as an adult person but for me as a as as a as a male to a grown-up the the movie was not as mm, not 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 as big but i experienced like some different uh perspective that seems really great for me actually for you to bring up because you know peter experienced hook as a child as a 10 year old Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. as the line goes and then as a grown-up I think he's supposed to be 40 in the in, in, in the movie. Yeah, somewhere around there, he's right? He's the same size as Hook. <laughs> yeah. So once he gets his skills back, it's like, wait a second. I kind of have a, have a new this, uh, this fight advantage was a lot harder. Here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before I leveled yeah. up. That was one of the things that I noticed. So I got a chance to watch this movie within the past couple of weeks. 
and it, I, I put it on originally with the intent to watch it with, with the boys and right. decided quickly, nah, maybe they're not quite old enough for this yet. Soon, maybe sure. four or five, maybe we might cross that bridge. But it didn't really hold their attention. I was like, I'm paying too much attention to this. I'm supposed to be doing other things. <laughs> so I, I, I stopped it. And then Georgia and I watched it, my wife. I was completely taken aback at how different the movie is Yeah, as an adult. As an adult, as a married man with kids, without getting too much into my experience, because you're our guest. Sure. What do you think the biggest differences are, or what is what strikes you most about this movie now as an adult? Because as a kid, it is that fantastical element, that fun element. Hook didn't scare me as a kid. I don't know, maybe if that's a testament to growing up and becoming more jaded, or or if it's just as a kid, the, the same level of fear is not... There's more things to fear as an adult, maybe. That now hook scares me. So speaking of fear, I, I want to talk about two moments in the film. So there's a moment after Peter Banning and his wife Moira and Granny Wendy get back from the uh, the big orphanage dinner. All the white-haired men stand up and thank Granny Wendy for rescuing them um, as orphans. And they get home and the door kind of flies open. There's wind all through the home someone's taken a knife or we we learn later maybe a hook and just has ripped it down every wall, every piece of furniture, every picture frame in the hallway and the stairwell and the nanny is just kind of like hand to her chest in shock, completely was, in shock. And the children were screaming, the children were screaming, like that kind of stuff. That uh-huh. was a very scary moment for me. All the wind and I think a child or adult that scared me because almost like a Tarantino film, you didn't see the action. Yeah. So you're imagining it and potentially in your mind, it's worse than if you had just seen, seen it on the screen. And then the second fearful moment for me as a kid was, and it was so slow, but when the dead taxidermied crocodile (laughs) in the center of the pirate town square falls over on hook and it takes, I don't know, it seems like 15 or 17 minutes (laughs) for it to actually fall down on him and he ends up standing up straight uh, so that the crocodile can (laughs) eat eat him more easily. That was such a like suspenseful thing for me as a kid. As an adult, the crocodile scene, nah, no not, big deal. Really. But yeah. that wind scene, still, still, for sure. There's just something about, and I think I, I think it just all ties back to this idea of the quest back to the inner child. For me, there's something unknown. There's something fearful, like a Joseph Campbell or Carl Jung, where your fear is there is your task. The cave you're afraid to go into is the cave you're supposed to go into to slay the dragon, type of thing. When you, you're you afraid, but you don't really know what the task is, but you know you kind of have to go forward. Mm-hmm. So that windy scene is still kind of spooky. That's, a, that's <laughs> sure. a scary one. There's a weird correlation. We we discussed this briefly when, when I kind of invited you onto the episode. Yeah. The movie kind of grows up with you. Absolutely. Because as as I remember watching it as a teenager and just thinking, man, Rufio is the dude. Right. Uh, it does help that Rufio is is Dante Bosco. Yes, and I, you know, as a teenager, was getting Avatar: Last Airbender coming out actively, so I I had a large large exposure. To From my understanding, Dante, Dante Bosco. Bosco is the only Lost Boy that actually continued to have a career uh, I, yeah. after this film. So that was always really cool seeing Rufio be the the older kid and the leader. I was I was the oldest kid in my house, mm. so that there was maybe a little bit of correlation there. The movie itself is. It's kind of a trip. Yep. Um, Especially the visuals and you get... I loved how you've got George Lucas as a cameo, Steven Spielberg producing and directing. Yep, absolutely. And then who do they call to do the music? 
Uh, John Williams. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Recipe for success right there. Absolutely. But not in a sense, not in the same way that you see them do anything else. Right. The music, if you had not told me, or I hadn't been enough of a nerd to look up that it was John <laughs> Williams, I would never have known. It right. doesn't sound like Star Wars. It doesn't sound like Indiana Jones or Harry Potter. Even. There's some odd jazz in the first There's, act, in yeah. my opinion, like at the baseball game and stuff that doesn't sound very John Williams-y. You know? Yeah. So. It's a very interesting flavor of movie to especially to have lasted and been as popular as it still is yeah what's your favorite scene i have to ask oh my gosh what a great question that i am completely unprepared for i will talk about a scene that i love that i'm not sure is my favorite scene but after bringing up our boy dante bosco who has just to quickly tell you things you already know and probably everybody listening things they already know peter leaves he falls in love with Gwyneth Paltrow and decides <laughs> to right? stay put, who grows up to be Moira. Nonetheless, somebody has to take over for the Lost Boys. Yeah. And, of course, in the original story, Hook dies in some way, but but in this sequel, he's still alive or whatever. So anyway, so someone has to take over for the Lost Boys and lead them and be the pan now, as Rufio would say. I'm the pan now, he says. Um, so this boy has to take over for Peter, and then Peter shows back up. And he has to eventually relinquish his leadership to Peter because Peter becomes the pan again. And he kneels down and gives him that sword again. But there's still that like big fight scene towards the end where Rufio is wants to take out Hook. Years and years. I mean, 30 years in our world. Who knows what that means in Neverland? I don't know if it's scriptural where a thousand years is like a day. I don't know. But anyway... <laughs> You get the feeling that Neverland's a little bit out of time. Right, absolutely. Things do not progress the same way that they do on Earth. So there's that final fight scene, and Rufio is fighting Hook, and then Hook gets Gets him. him. Hook Hook guts him, and he's laying on the deck of the ship dying, and Peter slides in on his knees and catches him as he falls down. And uh, Which calls back to the joke I made at the beginning of this, where Rufio looks up at Peter as he's dying and says, You know what I wish? I wish I had a dad like you. Mm Mm-hmm. That scene, well, I'm getting uh, goosebumps now, so maybe it is my favorite scene. But that moment, to me, kind of encapsulates what this movie is really about. Boys growing up, not wanting to grow up, dealing with the responsibility of growing up, whether it's mortgages or children or wives or just, you know, having enough money to go to the bar. I don't know what it is that boys have to figure out uh, as they grow up because I'm a boy that still hasn't grown up and I, I don't know what it is yet. But And Peter switches from... It's really interesting because he's kind of playing a dad role and Rufio is giving him this dad quote, I mm-hmm. wish I had a dad like you. And then Rufio dies in his arms and Peter kind of switches from banning to pan even more in that moment. Mm-hmm. And he stands up and he says, this ends now or something like that. I'm not sure if I'm getting the quote exactly correct. And he decides he's going to take care of Hook and he's going to end all this and, and you know, put his final foot down in all of this stuff. I th- I believe... That's one of the moments where the quote to die, to live is a great adventure. Mm-hmm. To die is a great adventure. Hook at one point in the movie says death is the only adventure I have left. Like these kind of things about life and death. And there's some of that you get like from the original pan storylines, which is just so great to see worked in through the course of the movie. I think the movie being a really interesting study on how do you, how do you be an adult and a kid? Yeah. And I think having kids particularly, you can't really ever, completely grow up because mm. if you if you do in my opinion if you do 
you're never going to be able to connect with your kids. And that's part of what the movie's talking about is showing how Peter Banning got sucked up with his job and sucked up with being big, bad, scary lawyer guy who comes in and mercilessly takes over other businesses. And his own son describes him as a pirate. And so does uh, Granny and Wendy. So does Granny Wendy, oh, which Peter, is Maggie Smith, isn't it? Absolutely. Which is hilarious because she's playing someone her current age. Yes. 20 plus years ago. I don't think there's a bad performance in the movie. And it's so weird. You don't see those kinds of movies often where no. there's really just not a lot you can complain about. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add about this movie, about life? I think I relate to this film. Here's what I'll say. I'll make it a little personal, I suppose. I think I relate to this film because somewhere along the way, I lost my wonder and not childishness, but childlikeness mm-hmm. because I believed that the world was asking more of me than a child could give. So I left my childlikeness behind in order to be someone that the world seemed to want and realized in my adulthood that what is best for the world is for me to never lose the wonder of my inner child. And I think that's the story of Peter. So the movie means a lot to me because I see when I was 11 or 12 and watched it and I saw Peter Banning, I maybe saw myself and his son Jack a little more just because of the age uh, Mm -hmm. similarity. But as he became the pan again, I saw myself there. And now I'm 42 and I watch this film and I still see myself there. So I think that's the whole full circle story of the film and why it matters to me and why I might proselytize that it should matter to everyone (laughs) because there's something about that that I hope that we all can hold on to or recapture if, like I did, uh, uh, had lost it. I just think it's really beautiful to keep what you have and yet still reconnect to what you once lost and bring it along with you. Well, Murph, thank you so much for taking the time to to join us. It has been a blast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content, but it's so cool when you come to us too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram, Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. In last month's episode, we mentioned that we'd have three episodes coming in June. Our friends Jeremy Stroop and Michael Ganzer have been working on the artwork for the Campaign Diaries, and they have delivered. Those episodes dropped on the same day as this one. Go check them out. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>